me to Matthew chapter 9, continuing our journey through Matthew's gospel. And this morning, the words to which I would call your attention come to us from verses 9 through 13 of Matthew chapter 9. Let's hear God's word together as we read it as an act of worship. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Please pray together with me. Our Father, we thank you so much that you've caused your word to be preserved for the church of Jesus Christ that we might enjoy the peace which you have intended for us as we turn here and are instructed today by the very words of our Lord spoken during his earthly ministry. Would you please um, walk with us in this time? Strengthen our convictions to do what is right. Reveal your mercy to your people and give us hearts of praise for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come to uh, an autobiographical portion of Matthew's Gospel. This is uh, Matthew's Gospel. And the man who wrote these scriptures now gives you a, just a briefest little glimpse into his own life, how he came uh, to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He, some of you are uh, covenant children. You grew up in households where your, your, your parents taught you the faith. And, and by God's grace, you, you never have known a day when you walked away from Christ. You've never rebelled. Um, you've lived uh, maybe the exemplary Christian life, all, all to the credit of God's grace and mercy in your life. But that wasn't the case for Matthew. Matthew here as an adult man was one who wasn't walking with God. In fact, he was considered by many to be a traitor to Israel. And so he tells us a bit about his his testimony. Now, as you notice in verse 9, uh, Jesus had passed on from there. R remember, as we back up a little bit, Matthew has just told us uh, in the life of Christ this moment when he healed this paralytic man. Well, he got up from Peter's house and he went out. And Mark tells us that he had gone back down beside the Sea of Galilee and people were coming to him by the masses, and there he was standing by the sea, and he was teaching them there. Well, he, he began to walk on a little bit, and as he passed by the tax collector's booth, there sat a man by the name of Matthew. Now, his Hebrew name was Levi. And he was sitting there in the tax collector's booth, and Christ approached him. And he said to him, Matthew, follow me. And he got up, and he followed after his Lord. And so Matthew uses this occasion to draw your attention 
to three interactions. One is his interaction with Matthew himself. And the second is his interaction with more tax collectors and sinners gathered in Matthew's home. And then lastly, we see Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees. So there are three scenes that are presented to you here. Now, as we get into this, one thing that you need to understand is that something about the nature of Matthew's character, perhaps. In, in the 19th century, a man by the Frenchman by the name of uh, Frederick Bastiat was writing on the law. It's a really short pamphlet that he wrote, and he, he talks about taxation, and he refers to taxation as legal theft. Some of you can relate to that, and you would say, I like that definition. It is legal theft. It is uh, the government has legalized it for the government to reach in and take my money and put it in the government coffers. This is why it's so popular to become a politician, because you get to control where all that money goes. And who gets robbed from? Well, it wasn't so different in Matthew's day. Matthew was a man who was an Israelite. Now think about this. He was an Israelite collecting taxes for Caesar. And he was sitting there in his tax booth. He was a reminder to every Israelite that they weren't home. That they were still paying taxes to the man. That they were still under the authority of someone who was not a Davidic king. Matthew, in his role, is a reminder that they still live in exile. But Matthew, in his position as a tax collector as tax collectors would do, would take a little for Caesar and a little for Matthew. This is the way that it worked. They were able to collect a little above and beyond what the state levied for their own enrichment. And so as you can imagine, these men, these tax collectors became hated people. I know you can't imagine that at all. People in the IRS being disliked. But here it is on paper. He was a disliked man. So, so here's, as you think about this scene, and Jesus going to Matthew, he's not just going into a, a slum, as it were, and, and calling those who were the most lowly. He's not going to a homeless man. He's not giving money to a beggar on the street. He's not in the hospital. Because you and I, would, we could say, oh, I, I can appreciate his pity. Jesus is going to a man who was an outcast to society. Despised. Rejected. Considered a traitor. To whom no one in their right mind would show hospitality. Why? Because he might see that you need to be assessed more taxes. Perhaps... Even Peter and James and Andrew and John, as they were bringing their catch onto the shore and selling the fish, they would have passed by Matthew's booth and he'd have said to them, not so fast, I need my take. <clears throat> 
Matthew wants you to see in this passage the extraordinary mercy of the God who seeks and saves lost people going out to get them, changing their lives and bringing them to Himself. But He also wants you to see the effect that the Gospel of Jesus Christ has upon men whose hearts are self-righteous and self-trusting. Notice first of all that Jesus seeks the lost. We see it in verse 9. It's very plain. Jesus passed on from there. He went down to the seashore we know. He, he saw a man. Now, there's an interesting little play here. Uh, the Greek actually introduces there was a man who was a tax collector whose name was Matthew. We could translate it that way. He saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose from there. Now, for decades upon decades now, many churches have designed their worship services in such a way to make them appealing to what they call seekers. Now, how does this happen? How, how do churches make their worship services appealing to seekers? Well, in the first place, you have, to, you have to operate under the assumption that there is such a thing as an individual who is seeking after God. And so if you envision that there is such a thing as a man who is, who is in his lost estate, seeking after God, then what you do is, is maybe, um, maybe you, 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 as a minister, you dress yourself in such a way as to, to look a certain way. You, you don't want to turn people off. That, that seeking stage in life is so sensitive. Maybe it's so fleeting that you don't, want to, you don't want to put a bad taste in the individual's mouth. You don't want to do anything to turn that individual off and maybe cause him to leave the church forever. So, so what do you do? Well, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to preach very hard on sin. I'm going to, I'm going to try to become to you a life coach. I'm actually going to tell you maybe that, that really you're pretty okay. I mean, look at you. Look at the people sitting in these chairs out here. These are okay. These are the okayest people in Macomb and Summit and even Meadville. But the challenge to that is that Scripture says there are no seekers. Let me invite you to turn over with me to Romans chapter 3. Some of you know this by heart. This is, this is one of those passages of Scripture quoting the Psalms here. Um, Paul is. That it changes the way that you view evangelism and the work of the church in a sense. Read with me Romans 3.9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Now, let me, let me just stop there and make a comment. Go, go back up with me and read in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or is, what is the value of circumcision? Listen, he says much in every way. So there's a sense in which the Jews had every advantage. But are they better off? 
from a spiritual perspective, from a heart perspective in verse 9, Paul says, no, even though you have all the outward elements from a heart perspective, you're not better off. Look what he says. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. Pay careful attention. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. You see that phrase? No one seeks for God. Now, this is teaching you about the effects of the fall. Man's heart has become so corrupted, his mind has become so debased under sin that his whole desire for pleasing God has completely evaporated. There are no seekers. It's a myth. Men, all men are God's image bearers. All men have the law of God on their hearts. But lost men do not seek for God. Instead, what do they do? They spend their moments trying to justify sinful desires. So Matthew's conversion is a stirring one. It demonstrates Christ's extraordinary mercy. How did Matthew come to Christ? He didn't. Christ went to him. Christ went and got him. Christ, as the shepherd of the sheep, went and gathered this man to himself. And and Matthew preserves what we need to know about that moment. He was a tax collector. He, as any Jew was reading this passage, they'd have immediately responded, maybe like you do, ugh, tax collectors. He wasn't poor. He wasn't homeless. He was probably somewhat well off. But from a spiritual perspective, he was in a slum. And Christ went there to get him. Christ called a man despised by most of the people in the community and made him an apostle. Notice the effect that Christ's call had upon him in verse 9. Matthew rose and followed him. A very simple, very simple obedience. We've, we've seen this. We saw this just in, in the, the paralytic man in uh, the verses preceding this. Uh, Jesus healed him and he said, rise, take your mat and go home. And he did. Here, the call of Christ is so powerful that it changed Matthew. Luke In Luke 5, verse 28, he recorded that Matthew left everything. What does that mean? Well, he left the tax booth. He quit his job. I would suggest to you that in that moment, under the conviction of sin and the work of the Holy Spirit, Matthew realized, I can't go back to that job. I cannot continue in a profession that causes me, requires me to sin. And and some of you probably have, maybe you have a conversion story like this, or you know someone uh, who has a conversion story, some of the most common ones. I, I had to work on the Lord's day and I quit my job so I could be with the Lord's people. Or it was requiring me to be unfaithful in certain ways. So I quit 
to be more faithful. This is the transformative power of Christ's call. Not just for Matthew, but for every single person that Christ calls to Himself. It transforms you. Why? Because you're not a seeker, and He makes you a seeker. You don't understand, and now you do understand. You were under sin, and now you are under grace. There is a deep and a profound repentance. Now, I would note for you that we'd probably have to turn people away if we announced that more evangelism meant fewer taxes. Don't you think? Look, the transformative power of the gospel means that men are going to quit their tax-collecting jobs. But I think one thing you take away from this is that if you notice someone whose lifestyle brings shame to himself and his community, you have identified someone to whom Christ would take the gospel. If you know someone whose lifestyle brings shame to himself and to his community, then you've identified someone to whom Christ would take the gospel. And he will do so through you and me. Matthew set aside his very means of making a living for Christ. And if men, by the call of the Lord Jesus Christ, will set aside their means of making a living, then we must understand that men will set aside, because of the call of Jesus Christ, many other sins. Notice also that Matthew wasn't ashamed to tell you about it. Now, he didn't belabor it. He didn't label himself as a tax-collecting Christian. But he wants you to know the power of Christ. That Christ came and got him. That Christ changed his life. And that now he delights in following this man who is his Lord. Secondly, Notice that not only does Jesus go out and call sinners to himself, he also fellowships with him. Now, this is, this is hard to digest. <laughs> Notice with me in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. You get this, you get this image. Now, what Matthew doesn't record for us, because here again we see the effect of the gospel on his life, Matthew invited Jesus to his own home. And it, it may have been a fairly nice place, because he was well-to-do. Matthew leaves all of that. You don't need to know that it was Matthew's place. And I think there's a reason for that. But first of all, notice that here, you see what this is, don't you? This is a picture of the church of Jesus Christ gathered for Sunday morning and Sunday evening worship every week to fellowship and commune with the Lord Jesus Christ. In this moment, 
Christ is gathered with a room full of sinners. And He delights to do so. He loves you. He loves to show you His mercy. He delights in your fellowship with Him by the Holy Spirit and the cleansing power that you've experienced by His blood. And Matthew wants you to notice something about this scene. Why doesn't he list himself? Why does, why does here he not tell us that this was his home? I think because he wants you to understand that just as in worship, when we are gathered as the body of Christ, Jesus is the host. In fact, there's kind of a technical term here as we look at verse 10. And as Jesus, you see, reclined at table, this is putting him in the position of the host of the party, Many tax collectors and sinners came and they were guests, literally they were guests reclining with Jesus and his disciples. This is, this is a, a banquet that is hosted by the Lord Jesus Christ. And Matthew in his autobiography here is delighted to make Christ now the host of the party. Matthew's saying, I'm not hosting. He's in my home, but he's hosting me. Notice also that Matthew's conversion drew others to Christ. Why are the tax collectors and the sinners there? Well, they saw the mercy of Christ demonstrated to one who was like them. Perhaps these men who thought no one who's a religious leader in any way will ever welcome me to his table. But Christ did. We often lament the state of affairs in our community or in our country. We watch clips about how things are going wrong and rioting and theft and murder. And we wonder what will change these things. Well, the conversion of a man. What if the answer to that state of affairs is not a change in administration? Or five conservative justices sitting on a nine-justice panel? What if the answer to that state of affair, state of affairs in our community and country is a reflection on the unwillingness of the church to take the gospel to those whom they despise? You see, the church of Christ reflects the mercy of Christ when she does two things. When she welcomes into her doors those who are despised and rejected. And when she takes the gospel to those outside her walls. This week in my, or last week in my Pastor's note, I reflected on a story that happened he here. There was a man. I showed up in the parking lot. There was a car stopped out here. And uh, against my better judgment, I went over to see what was going on. And this guy who was, uh, who was very, seemed very agitated and sort of, uh, uh, um, he, he needed some counsel. He needed some comfort. And so I invited, invited him in. 
Um, and he related to me his, his story. He'd been fired from various jobs and probably because of his poor character. And he revealed to me that he was gay. And then he asked me if he would be welcomed at our church after I invited him to worship. And I told him, of course you will be. The, the church doesn't turn out of her doors those who don't look like them or smell like them or live like them. And, and we welcome people to come and sit in these chairs and to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. Why do we do that? Why, why should you feel comfortable inviting your friends who, who don't look like you or maybe even affirm the same beliefs that you do to come and sit here because they need the Word of God. This is a means of grace, not, not just to the pure, because none of them are here, but to the defiled. Every single individual sitting in these seats is clinging to the hope of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I spoke with a, a couple not long ago who who said there was some hesitance about inviting a, a same-sex attracted neighbor because they might hear from the pulpit that God does not condone, condone same-sex attraction. And I would just call your attention back to the fact that when Matt, Jesus called Matthew to himself, he transformed that man's life. Do you, do you think that there was not a moment in that conversation between Jesus and Matthew when Jesus said, Matthew, you know that robbing from people is a sin? And demonstrating the power of the Holy Spirit in his life at that moment in his newfound life and humility, Matthew would have said, I do now. And I repent. The gospel, the gospel divides people. We go back up and we notice in, in the preceding passage that some of the scribes were questioning among themselves. This saying, is this blasphemy? So not all the scribes were saying that. They were divided from one another. Perhaps they were deb debating with one another. Some were saying, he's blaspheming. And others were saying, well, I don't think so. We ought to be, if we are the church of Jesus Christ, a place where all sorts of people can come inside, where all sorts of people can hear the gospel and the life-giving message of the scriptures preached to them, which includes a call to repentance and must include a call to repentance, understanding as we do that under the power of the Holy Spirit, they will repent unto newness of life. Jesus sought sinners. He fellowshiped with sinners. Thirdly, just so that you understand that Christ is not also a pushover. He rejected the proud. Look with me. This is the, the bulk of our passage in verses 11 through 13. And when the Pharisees saw this, and I would add, sort of as an editorial, you can sort of see the hair standing up on their neck. Their ears turning red. They said to his disciples, they dare not treat Christ as an equal. 
why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, notice that they're just, if you were a Jew reading this passage, they are pretty much expressing the question that has come to your mind as you're reading this. Who, on their, who in their right mind would lower himself in the eyes of society to fellowship with these refuse? But when Christ heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So I think there's a, just one observation that we ought to make first and foremost here. That as Christ had gone and plucked a man out of Satan's basket, now Satan seeks to do the same in turn. And so he makes this appeal to the followers of Christ in the same way that he always does. With a question. This time he's not saying, has God really said, as he did to Eve, notice his question. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You see what they're trying to do as agents of the devil. They want to stir up doubts. They want to sow, they are sowing doubt, stirring up doubt. Why? So that these disciples would leave their Lord. Well, that's a good question. I think I'll ponder that. Recently, I was talking with someone whose whose child is... uh, set to attend a major university here in the state. And we were looking through some of the courses in the student manual. This particular university offers nine courses on gender studies. I'm sure after which they wouldn't be able to answer what a woman is. But this person's child is taking a course called History of Religion. The child thinks, well, I'm going to go in and learn about world religions. But that's not going to be the case. You see, the history of religion, the idea is that religion has a history. It has a beginning point. That early man, after he had evolved out of the primordial soup, as it were, at some point began to attribute things like earthquakes and rain and snakes and volcanoes to some sort of higher power. And this is Satan's way of inviting the children of the church in, saying, let's think together for a minute. Has God really said? My question, under those assertions, of course, is always, well, how do you justify the fact that man would envision a God at all? Where could that idea even originate? This is Satan's way. He wants you to doubt. And so he uses the Pharisees, and today he uses many teachers to infuse doubt into your heart and mind. What did the disciples do? What did they do with the question? They went to Christ. Why do you? It's not wrong to ask questions of the Lord, but ask the questions to Him. And seek the answers in His Word. 
that Jesus, hearing what they said, now offers a threefold rebuke to the Pharisees. He says three things. One in a parable, one in a command, and one in an explanation. Three things about self-righteousness to these self-righteous Pharisees, these agents of the devil. He says, well, first of all, the self-righteous do not need Christ. The self-righteous cannot learn from Christ. And the self-righteous do not delight in God's mission to lost sinners. Notice what he says to him. The first thing he says, verse 12, but when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Well, this is obvious, isn't it? I mean, any, any schmo understands that doctors exist for sick people. Now, I know that there's a well upside for well visits and there's a side for sick visits. But in the end, the, the, the bulk of the industry is to provide uh, 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 medication and help for those who are sick or might become sick. But Jesus demonstrates by this assertion that there is a special hardness that lies upon the heart of self-righteous men. Now, what, what, what is a self-righteous man? Well, these Pharisees, they'd spent their lives studying God's law, okay? And not only the law, but the traditions of the law and the rabbinic interpretations of the law. They'd spent their lives studying these things. Paul, remember, he recounted in his testimony that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And what does he point to? All of the qualifiers. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I studied under Gamaliel. I did all of these things according to the law. I persecuted the church. I put to death those who I believed were blasphemers. And all of these qualified me. All of these external uh, outward actions made me Righteous. Today, that might look like the individual who says, I never miss a worship service. Every time the doors are open, I'm there. And we praise God for that if the motivation is God's pleasure and the enjoyment of the mercy of Christ. Or it might be the individual who says, I am a covenant child. I praise God that I was raised in a covenant home. I was baptized when I was one hour old. Beat that. Or maybe you have spent time sitting under some of these seeker-sensitive preachers who said, you are good enough. I mean, God loves you. Look at you. You show up to work on time. You give money to the crisis pregnancy center. These Pharisees, they tithed not just money, but mint and dill and cumin. They even tied down to their herbs. But you see, they thought that these things gave them a special status in God's eyes. And Jesus demonstrates that actually all of those things, all of that self-interest caused a special hardness to lie upon their hearts that kept them from even seeing the promise of mercy or the need for it. The self-righteous do not need Christ. You're able to stand in the judgment by yourself. I'm going to get to the pearly gates. And heaven will applaud. 
You see, Christ offers only to stand in the place of those who recognize their sinfulness, which self-righteous men cannot see. The physician is only for the sick. Do you need a physician? Are you sick? Secondly, the self-righteous cannot learn from Christ. There's not only a, there's a special hardness upon the heart, there's a, a hardness that lies upon the mind. And so Jesus, notice how interesting this is in verse 13. First the command, go. And how incensing would this have been to men who'd grown up under the tutelage of all of their teachers? Learn. Learn what this means. Go away from me and learn what this means. And Jesus here, he quotes from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And the point of Hosea, we've been going through it at night, that God is indicting Israel over and over and over again. He's saying, you've broken my law. You've broken my law. You've broken my law. Now, what's interesting about the indictment is that the, the temple was still there. In fact, they made extra altars. They were still bringing their sacrifices to the altar, slitting the throat, shedding the blood, doing all the things that they were supposed to do, observing the festivals, the new moon, the day of atonement. They were doing these things. There were still kings. There were still priests, Levites. They had all the ceremony. But Jesus says to them, quoting Hosea 6.6, 6, what God desires is mercy. Yes, God delights to give you forgiveness, and He's given you this sacrificial system so that He could show you that you are forgiven. But you see, what you're doing is you're turning that system of sacrifice into a means of license to justify your sins. You think that you can reject people and turn your nose up to people, but because you're going to be forgiven and you've got all these sacrifices and you're ceremonially clean, that you're okay. They reflect, represent those who are obstinate. They won't submit to God's Word. Instead, they are quite happy to lean on their own understanding. Jesus turns them away. Thirdly, the self-righteous do not delight in God's mission to lost sinners. Imagine this. Imagine this for just a second. That here we have this moment in, in redemptive history. These men, they've studied Isaiah. They've read it. They've read Isaiah 52. They've read Isaiah 53. He has taken our uh, guilt upon Himself. He's become the Lamb in our place. They've read all these things. They've read Ezekiel. They've read the indictments. And here they are having read from Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man. They've read all of these things. And here's the mission right before their face. And they can't see it. And not only can they not see it, they hate it. If this is God's plan, I don't want it. Jesus says to him, 
I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. This takes us back, doesn't it, to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, look, if your righteousness does not exceed the scribes and the Pharisees, then you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he ended the sermon by saying, you must be holy as God is holy. We look at those things, we say, well, who's going to stand? You see, when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in a man and brings him to life through the new birth, you know what he acknowledges? I have no hope apart from Christ. And you delight in this statement. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. And you can say, because I can make Paul's confession all day long. I am the chief of sinners. I can make that confession. uh, confession how can you identify a man then who has been called by Christ really simple he freely confesses his sin you confront his sin he accepts it and he'll say oh if you only knew (laughs) you only know half the story you should know about the rest of my sin Matthew said, I was a tax collector when, Paul, when Christ come to, came to me. I was sitting there robbing people and Jesus stepped in in that moment. I was in my sin, conducting my sin, and Christ got me and brought me to Himself. Men who have been called by Christ freely confess their sin and they acknowledge the infinite debt that they owe to the Almighty God. Remember the, the parable that Jesus told about the, uh, the ungrateful steward in Matthew 18 there was a man who came before the king actually he was brought before the king this was judgment day and as he's standing there before the king the king looks at him in the face and he says you owe 10,000 talents that's your debt so we're going to throw you and your whole household into prison forever and the man pleads for the Lord's mercy the master's mercy he says I can't repay there's no way it's impossible the debt is so much I could work 10,000 lifetimes I could never pay it back to you and the king says okay I will show mercy I will forgive your debt and what did the man do he walked outside and he saw his friend who owed him a shekel And he shook him down and he threw him into prison. He loved mercy for himself, but not for anyone else. Jesus tells us that parable because he wants you to understand, how do I know if I've been affected by the mercy of God? Well, because you show it to other people. I love... uh, Lisa, every time you greet her and you say, how are you doing? How are things going? Well, uh, better than I deserve. Well, that's a Christian testimony. Every one of us can say that. There's not anybody in your town that you can thumb your nose at or look down at. Why? Well, because your Lord doesn't. And because He didn't to you, He came and He got you. And I'll just conclude this morning with a quotation from John Calvin on this passage. He says, this deserves our particular attention. For it is a disease which has been always very general. 
hypocrites being satisfied and intoxicated with a foolish confidence in their own righteousness do not consider the purpose for which Christ was sent into the world and do not acknowledge the depth of evils in which the human race is plunged or the dreadful wrath and curse of God which lies on all or the accumulated load of vices which weighs them down. My dear friends, as we think about the kind of church that Christ would have us be, how we would honor Him on a Sunday-to-Sunday basis, what does it look like? Well, being like Him and seeking the lost. And when they come, after our invitation, welcoming them in. And in those who stand in their self-righteous, having the fortitude to say, for you, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Let's pray. Father, this is a balm to every heart. Because for every, every sincere believer seated in this room, Lord, we know, that we know our sins. And you know our sins. And you know our sins better than we do. And there's a load of them as our, our father in the faith, John Calvin, has said. We look good. We're handsome and pretty this morning. But our hearts, Father, apart from Christ, are wretched and despicable. Father, we come delighting in the mercy of Christ, every single one of us delighting that you came to get us. Thank you. And we ask that you would use us. Use us as the hands and feet of Christ to go and get others. Help us to delight, not in our own ostentation, not in our own beauty, not in our own order and the cleanliness of our lives but in doing the work of Christ. Let that be our joy. Father, give us us the strength of, of, of conscience, the strength of will to be honest about sin and call men to repentance. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.